Well, good morning. My name is Miriam, not Julie Coleman. Um, and I am the wife of a shepherd. Um, my, my husband is a field hand who watches over the flocks of sheep just outside of the uh, little town of Bethlehem. We're about five miles uh, west of our nation's proud capital of Jerusalem. Now, of course, you know Jerusalem is the place where all the important things happen. The temple's there, the place where people offer sacrifices to God, worship him. Um, and the highest people, the honor, the people who have most honor in our society live there too, and influence. The high priest and his family, the government and empowered by Rome, called the Sanhedrin, is there. And also pilgrims make their journey there all the time, uh, especially during the three holidays, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And they travel from very long distances to come to Jerusalem. Very important part. Well, our little town of Bethlehem is really just the opposite. We're not really, uh, we're not on any kind of a major trade route where people would come through us. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's not really a destination for anyone. It's more known as kind of like a small rest stop where you would go on your way to Jerusalem uh, because it's just an hour's walk away to get to Jerusalem. You can see on the map um, where uh, Jerusalem is down by the Red Sea there, and Bethlehem is just four to five miles south of that, so it's not very far at all. So you wouldn't go and go to Bethlehem. You might stop there, uh, but not, it's not a destination for anyone. It would kind of be like stopping at Kissimmee, Florida, and not going the rest of the way to Disney World. <laughs> and so people don't do that. But as unimportant as we are, we do have a lot of history that have happened in our little town. First of all, Bethlehem is where Jacob, Israel's wife, was actually buried, Rachel, his beloved wife, who died in childbirth as she brought Benjamin into the world. There's also Ruth, who came to Bethlehem from Moab with her mother-in-law, Naomi, and she ended up marrying a man named Boaz, and they compared her in the town to Rachel, and they expressed her prayers that her descendants would be great. And of course, our most illustrious descendant out of the town of Bethlehem is King David. He was born and raised in Bethlehem. And Samuel came into the house of Jesse in search of a new king when he was just a young boy, a shepherd, just like my husband. He's a man after God's own heart, and God chose him to be the king. And he promised to make his descendants have an eternal throne. And there's one more very important place in history that the prophets gave Bethlehem. And it's in uh, the book of the uh, prophecy of Micah. It says this, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child, and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and this one will be our peace. So as David was born and then anointed to be king in our town of Bethlehem, well, Another anointed king was going to be coming from David's line, the anointed king, the Messiah. But at the point in time that I'm here to tell you about this today, um, our sleepy little town had been absolutely transformed. You see, Caesar, 
Caesar Augustus had ordered a census taken of all the citizens of Israel. Now, this was because he wanted to tax people, and he wanted to make sure every last person was paying exactly what they needed to pay to the Roman government. So in order to organize a count, every person was required to go back to their hometown, to the dwelling of where their uh, forefathers, their family line had come from. Now, in the 10th century since David, a lot of people had been born. And there were enough descendants of David alone that were enough to make a small nation outright. So people started arriving into town. And you can imagine, we were a small little town, but the streets became jammed with people. There was nowhere to go anywhere. People were laying out in the streets. There were makeshift inns that were open. We didn't even really have an inn because we were such a small town. But people started opening up their homes and, and, and renting beds. Food vendors were wandering the streets trying to give enough food to feed these peoples, selling to a very hungry crowd. There was no way our little town was going to be able to accommodate that number of people and give them a bed. But amidst all that excitement, and it was exciting, <laughs> life in Bethlehem had to carry on. And so my husband and the other field hands continued their job watching the flocks, even with all the hustle and bustle in the city. You know, a lot of people in town and actually in our nation look down on the shepherds. You know, it's always been that way. When uh, Joseph was in Egypt, and was bringing his brothers and father down to the land, this is what he told them. When Pharaoh calls for you, he will let you live here in the region of Goshen, for the Egyptians despise shepherds. So you don't make a lot of money working as a shepherd. And you know what they say, money is power. So shepherds, not so much. The religious leaders also looked down on the shepherds. And the reason was they had all these religious things that you should do when you're going to eat a meal or, or um, other kind of cleansing rites. And the shepherds just couldn't do it. They were out in the fields with the sheep. The flocks were very demanding. So they just couldn't do it. It just wasn't possible. Now, well, some of the other shepherds' wives, they felt inferior and kind of had a complex about that. I never did. And this is why. He was doing more than an honest day's work. Because you see, at the temple in Jerusalem, five miles away, they had a sacrifice offered every morning and every night, an unblemished lamb. And so all that sacrificing, they needed to maintain a flock. And guess where they maintained it? Bethlehem. So my husband was doing more than just serving man. He was serving God by taking care of those sheep. And so I was never quite ashamed. They were, had a higher calling. And you know, in the scriptures, God is not ashamed to compare himself to a shepherd either. David wrote a psalm about God being his shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And God said through the Ezekiel the prophet to people who were living in exile and had been carried away and had not yet come back to, to our country, as a shepherd cares for his herd, I will care for my sheep. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest. And not only does God compare himself to a shepherd, but the Messiah is known in the Old Testament, what you would call the Old Testament. For me, it was just the scriptures. But he was known as the great shepherd for the nation. 
This is what it says in Ezekiel. I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, which is a descendant of David, and he will feed them himself and be their shepherd. So with all that positive about shepherds, <clears throat> I was never really feeling very inferior. We made a, a, a hard living, but it was something that was meaningful. But then something happened one night that made me absolutely certain that shepherds were actually important to God. You see, my husband and several of his co-laborers, they were watching over the fields at night. Now, kind of picture this in your mind. Dark, dark, dark. They were outside of town. There were no, it was just pitch black. The skies were black. The, the uh, flocks had kind of settled down in their place, and they were out in the field for the night, and there were several shepherds watching them. They had a little fire going. Some of the shepherds were dozing off by the fire. Others had taken that first watch, and they were listening for sounds of problems within the flock, like a wild animal coming to try to steal one of them. <clears throat> and then, in that quiet, in that peace, it happened. Without any warning, an angel appeared to them. He was surrounded by this bright light, so startling to them who had just been sitting in the darkness. Now, you have to understand, we didn't have electricity like you people have. There was no light at night, except for maybe a little oil lamp that you could light with a single flame or maybe light from a fire. But there was no bright anything. And sure enough, this bright light came, lit up the place around them. And they knew immediately what they were seeing. They were seeing the glory of God. And they were terrified as anybody in the Bible who sees the glory of God. Absolute terror. But this is what the angel told them. He said, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now, before they could even get their head around what the angel was saying, now the whole sky lit up ahead of them. And, it, and there was this great chorus, heavenly chorus, with a multitude of more heavenly bodies singing, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. And then, nothing. Now, you can imagine, standing there after watching that big show, all the shepherds stood there with their mouths hanging right open. What had just happened? Now, they knew who the Christ was. Christos literally means anointed one, and it's the equivalent of the Hebrew word Mashiach. So the anointed prince of Daniel's prophecy, the Messiah, is who they were talking about. So they knew right away. The angels had just announced the birth of the Messiah. But it didn't make sense. Because surely when God's anointed came, he wouldn't be showing up in Bethlehem. Now, he had to be more, somewhere more important like Jerusalem, a place where people who could come, who knew what they were talking about, and validate his birth and announce it. Somewhere close to the temple, you would think. 
somewhere where the leaders could affirm him, somewhere where a great chorus of singers could celebrate his birth, leading people to dance in the streets. That's what the Messiah should come like, but not what they just had, had um, discovered. And as a matter of fact, the reason why they might think that is because Augustus Caesar, Caesar was celebrated on the anniversary of his birth, and he was considered by the Romans to be a son of God, or a God, a great sovereign over the land and sea. He was thought to be a benefactor and savior of the whole world. That's what they called Augustus Caesar. And when he came into a city, great choruses would herald his arrival. Sounding a little familiar? So all of those things, that's what the shepherds were thinking. How could the Messiah have been born, and why are you announcing it to shepherds? It didn't make any sense at all. And that he would be in this very moment lying in a, a manger, a feeding trough for animals. But the angel had told them something else. He told them that a sign was waiting for them. Now, you see, a sign is something given by God to validate somebody's words. You probably use that word miracle. But think of the prophets, like Elijah, who was preaching about God and calling the people to repentance to him, and God, to validate, had this fantastic miracle happen where Elijah was able to call down fire from heaven and burn up something on the altar. So that was what he, the angel was talking about, a sign, a validation of what they had just announced and sung. So they would know. They hadn't just seen, seen something. So the shepherds looked at each other, and they said, let's go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has just made known to us. So they started off, and pretty soon they were running, running into town. They checked all the places they knew where animals were kept. It was a small town where they knew a manger might be. And then finally, they came to a shepherd, a shelter, excuse me, where a man was taking care of his young wife who had just delivered a baby. And there was the baby lying in a manger, just like the angels said. So they told Mary and Joseph what had just happened in the field. And rather than freaking out, Mary just sat patiently and listened intently, kind of a little smile on her face. So after they repaid their respects to the tiny infant, the shepherds headed back to the fields. But on their way, they told every single person who would make eye contact with them. They told everyone that what had happened, that the angel had just announced this thing to anyone who would listen. The Messiah has been born. He was the Savior, the Christ for the world. So the next morning, my husband came home, and he told me all the things that had happened. And together, we just kind of thought through all the extraordinary events that had taken place. My husband was absolutely convinced that what he had seen was the uh, birth and the arrival of the Messiah. This Messiah that had been promised centuries ago to our nation. But yet it was nothing like we expected it was going to be. I mean, compared to what we'd heard and seen about Caesar, proclaimed as a son of God, savior of the world, it was all such a stark contrast. Rather than being born in a palace, 
in lush, comfortable surroundings, laid in a fancy cradle with soft blankets and people to take care of them. God's son was born among animals in a crude shelter and laid in a feeding trough. Instead of his first residence being a, a big, important city like Jerusalem or Rome like Caesar, this little king was born in little Bethlehem. No more than a rest stop along the way to Jerusalem. And here's the thing. Rather than the most important dignitaries that could come and validate his arrival and birth, invited to celebrate his coming, the angels came and invited shepherds, the least important, the least powerful of anyone that was in town. It was all so upside down. So obviously, God's plans and God's values were very different from the world's. And that baby, three decades later, would have a three-year ministry here in Israel. And what we saw and heard in that amazing time when the angel, angels announced, they were carried out in every part of his life. Rather than hang out with the religious people, the pious people who looked like it had it all together, he chose to be friends with tax collectors and other sinners. He always had time for the pressing crowds. He touched the unclean like lepers with not just his fingers, but with his love. He rebuked his disciples for trying to dismiss the children. He proclaimed the greatness of servanthood, where the first in his life would be last in his kingdom, and the last in this life would be first. He preached that anyone that served the least of these were actually serving him. Oh, he was the savior of the world, the real savior of the world, the real son of God, the real anointed one, the Messiah. He proved it with more signs. He made the lame to walk and the blind to see. He championed the poor and the oppressed. He led this perfect life without sin. He was the exact representation of God's glory come in the form of a man, obedient to his heavenly Father to the point of death. He suffered for our sin. He received the terrible punishment for what we had done. You know, I've often thought, humility should have been his middle name because that's what he embodied. And it all began with an invitation to a few lonely, disrespected, isolated shepherds. So what? What does that mean for you today? Well, remember, the angels called it good news of great joy. You know, a lot of times when we think about God and our relationship with him, the first thing we feel is guilt. We feel like we're not praying enough or giving enough or doing enough for him. We feel guilty for all the sin that still remains in our lives both of those things that are thoughtlessly done and those things that we do deliberately. <clears throat> we never measure up to what God wants from us. And so all of that makes us feel insignificant. Like one little dot in a sea of billions of people that are here on this earth that God is watching over. How can we ever be important to someone like him? There have to be so many people that are higher on his priority list than we could ever be. Well, you know, that's how my husband and I kind of viewed ourselves until that night. 
all that glory and splendor, that feast for eyes and for ears to hear, that uh, most important announcement ever made in the history of the world, the invitation to come and see the newborn king, all of that was for a small group of lowly shepherds. And it really is an amazing picture of what God values. You see, because he's the same God today. He champions the oppressed. He heals what ails us. He pursues sinners. He's all about real people with common, ordinary lives. And he's continually drawing us into a relationship with him, not because of what we are or what we have done. His acceptance of us, just as we are, is possible because of the sacrifice of a humble Savior. You know, the poet Henry David Thoreau wrote a very famous quote now, we all live lives of quiet desperation. You know, people have always struggled with feeling insignificant. The shepherds that night probably wondered if they were even on God's radar. But Christmas changed everything for them. And Christmas changes everything for us now. Even the most insignificant of people can know that they're equally significant to God. The old person languishing in a nursing home, people that are still in prison over crimes they've committed, drug addicts, the throwaway child in the foster care system, the grieving forgotten person, all of them, every one of them, is important to God as a world leader is. You know, God has the eternal capacity to run the world and its leaders and yet know the number of hairs that are on your head. Isaiah wrote this, Can a woman forget her nursing child or lack compassion for the child of her womb, even if these forget? Yet I will not forget you. So where do you stand with the Savior today? Are you still trying to impress him to make a name for yourself in his kingdom? Well, if you are, you're thinking like the world thinks. Because in God's kingdom, the first are last, and the last will be first. In God's kingdom, servanthood is much more valued than making a big splash with some terrific big contribution. All of the impressing things we could ever hope to accomplish have already been accomplished by Jesus. We follow a humble servant, which means that our lives should be marked by humility, not accomplishment. The shepherds of old, they learned that on that spectacular night. God showed the world what he values, and we need to make those values our own. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that the Messiah was not the big cheese, but a humble servant, that he reached out to people who no one else would touch, and that he loved them the same as anyone. Thank you, God, for, for loving us in spite of all of the things that we have wrong with us. And we could all make quite a list of each of ourselves. But God, we thank you that because of Jesus, that we are acceptable to you, and you love us with grace, unmerited favor, not looking at what we could do. 
And God, we just pray that those kinds of things would be on our minds this Christmas season as we celebrate the birth of your Messiah. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.